Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to Matthew 22 and verse 7. Matthew 22 and verse 7. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Well, as it concerns this particular verse from the word of God in our series through this parable of the wedding banquet, we have already explored two themes that we see in this verse. We considered simply those words that when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, considering as it does in its own context, setting forth the the wrath of God upon unbelief, those who reject the gospel of grace. And last week, we considered the entire verse, looking at it specifically as it uh, demonstrates that Jesus Christ prophesied the judgment upon the Jews. He spoke of that coming judgment, particularly in 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed under that um, invading army under the general Titus. And we saw how this is not just uh, referenced here, but is a prominent theme within the scriptures, and in particular in the ministry of Christ. And we drew some applications From that, particularly right and biblical thinking about the religion of Judaism and the ideology of Zionism, finding as they do a warrant for rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus Christ and erecting a false ideology and religion. Now, was planning this week actually to return to this verse for there is one theme which I sought to explore from it which is the broader principle of national judgments national judgments this is a concept that was not strange at all to our fathers in the reformed faith and yet I fear is increasingly foreign to Christians today do we have a concept of God judging not only individuals, but nations and the whole history of the world consisting of his dealings with specific nations and judging them for their sins. Little little did I know that perhaps this may be more contemporary and relevant than I attended, as we mentioned in the morning prayer. We are in the midst of serious events also in the nation of Israel and the land of Palestine as well. You may be aware that ongoing violence has ensued uh, between those nations over recent years. So that the last 30 years, 1,300 Israelis have been killed in different attacks. Well, if 1,300 people were killed in 30 years was, was a tragedy. Then yesterday, 600 Israelis were killed in various attacks from Gaza. 
It's believed that as many as 100 soldiers and civilians were kidnapped as well. And, of course, retaliatory Israeli airstrikes are now being launched in the Gaza Strip. Some 370 people perhaps killed and 2,200 wounded, according to some reports. And rumblings of other countries getting involved and Certainly we can look at the situation as a terrible tragedy. I am certainly no expert in the events that precipitated it or uh, may have otherwise prevented it. But however we look at it as a mere political episode, it is an example of what I am speaking of. Whether we think of 9-11 taking place in America or the COVID um, crisis taking place among all the nations of the earth at once, or, or this terrible bloodshed. Whatever sin is involved with the human actors, God is superintending it all. And what is God doing among the nations? Well, such a judgment, Jesus Christ prophesied in a much greater, huger way as it concerns 70 AD, but I wish to uh, return to this theme now, considering really two things that we may learn from this verse and other relevant passages, and those would concern this theme of national judgments. National judgments. We'll see. First, those things which we may learn from the example of Israel itself, And having established some of those principles, I wish to show you from the word of God that they are broader, that they also concern all the nations of the earth as well. So first, considering those things that immediately concern Israel in the scriptures and then showing that they and and other principles of national judgment concern all the nations of the earth as well. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed these murderers and burned up their city. In context, Jesus, of course, is prophesying what the terrible end will be for the rejecters of his gospel and ministry for the Jewish nation, which will, for the great majority of them, participate in the guilt of their leaders in rejecting Jesus Christ, crucifying him, and persecuting and killing the apostles and martyrs of the early church. Jesus Christ issuing a terrible warning here, one like the prophets of old, which testifies that God is just, God is holy, will not overlook iniquities. And... In particular, in this case, the judgment that is rendered is not, uh, in the first instance, that eternal judgment upon the individual souls of men for eternity in heaven or for the redeemed of God in hell, for the damned or for the redeemed of God in heaven. This is a temporal judgment, one that takes place in history, and we considered it more carefully and in greater detail of what it involved in 70 AD in the last sermon last week. 
But now I want to recover this theme in Matthew briefly. And I want to show you how it really makes sense of things in this gospel of Matthew and the other four gospel accounts of our Lord's ministry that might otherwise seem very random, very haphazard, as though they were just thrown together. But no, there's a logic to the word of God. And this theme of national judgment is one of those things it contains. If we go back one chapter, which we read for our scripture reading last week in Matthew 21, you'll remember this chapter concerns Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his cleansing of the temple. But in Matthew 21 and verse 18, there is this uh, incident which might seem out of place at first glance. Look at verse 18. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing Thereon, but leaves only, and said, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when his disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? So why would the Bible include such an episode? Jesus is hungry as a Though he is the son of God, is a true righteous man, he approaches to the fig tree, finds there are no figs upon it in its season, and then pronounces this curse upon it, such that the the fig tree simply withers away to the marvel of the disciples. And you can read on about the lesson about faith that he taught in that connection. But you may ask the question, why? Why is this recorded of all the things in our Lord's life at this particular occasion. Well, it might be important for you to know that uh, one of the themes in the prophets, especially that of Isaiah, was the idea of his people as a fruit-bearing tree or vine or vineyard, which is required to bear fruit. I believe we may have covered that in our series on Jeremiah 31. Well, here, Jesus plays the role and office of God himself visiting his people in this symbolic display and finding no fruit, he pronounces this curse. Well, you may not be persuaded. Listen to what Dr. John Gill says about this episode. Quote, this tree was an emblem of the Jews, Christ being hungry and very desirous of the salvation of men, came first to them, from whom, on account of their large profession of religion and great pretensions of holiness, and the many advantages they enjoyed, humanly speaking, much fruit of righteousness might have been expected. But alas, he found nothing but mere words, empty boasts, an outward show of religion, an external profession, and a bare performance of trifling ceremonies, and oral traditions. Wherefore, Christ rejected them, and a little time after the kingdom of God, the gospel was taken away from them, and their temple, city, and nation entirely destroyed. Well, maybe you say, well, maybe that's speculative. Maybe Dr. Gill is just seeing things in the text. But you read further on, 
You read further on in this gospel book, in that same chapter, and all the way down to verse 43, and after Jesus' dialogue with the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, he says in verse 43, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The fruits thereof. And wherefore shall fall upon this stone, and whosoever shall fall upon this stone, shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard this parable, they perceived that he spake of them. National judgment spoken of here. I say, it's clear here that the scriptures are eager to explain for us that God's dealings with the Jews and that nation covenanted to God in a special way, involved this, that they did not bear forth the fruits of righteousness in their season, though many opportunities, privileges, and the light and word of God were bequeathed unto them. They were judged for their lawless disobedience to the Most High God. We know that among The Jews individually were godly men. We think of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, who the Bible distinguishes as particularly righteous. We know, of course, that those who heard the message of Jesus repented and followed him, both his disciples and others as well. We know that there were godly men among them, and yet God has this prerogative And that is to judge a nation corporately for their corporate sins, bringing temporal judgments, in this case, the destruction of their city and church state. Well, there you have one example of something that makes more sense when we see it in the context of this theme of national judgment. But Continuing in this theme of those things that concern the Jewish nation in particular, will you turn with me now one chapter over from Matthew 22 and Matthew 23. Look at Matthew 23 and verse 37. Now, before I, while you're turning there, I'll just mention you may know that Matthew 23 is this long series of woes that Jesus pronounces upon the scribes and Pharisees and by implication all those who follow them in their sin among the Jewish people. But it concludes with a very memorable verse and while we did consider some parallel passages to it I wish to read it for you now in verse 37. Jesus concluding this long series of woes, judgments, pronouncements, of curse upon the unbelieving Jews in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth their chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house 
is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So I wish to show you a few things from this passage in particular. A famous passage, but I fear perhaps misunderstood because of a lack of attention to the theme of national judgment, which we do find here. So you see that there's a clear parallel with what Jesus had said in his parable concerning the wedding banquet, that the judgment which falls upon the city was for their murdering the servants of the king. And so Jesus himself says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, now that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. A clear connection with what Jesus is speaking about throughout these chapters. Now he speaks something in a most interesting fashion. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken under her wings, and ye would not. Now, the picture is a most interesting one. Jesus taking the role of a chicken to little chicks. Maybe children, you've seen that at a farm or a petting zoo. There's the more mature chicken and it's walking around and maybe you have these small little fluffy uh, yellow chicks following after uh, the mother chicken. Well, what would perhaps happen would be that you would have the mother chicken sheltering those little chickens when they are in danger or when they are otherwise um, in need of, of protection. And so Jesus, speaking very clearly with the consciousness of his deity as the God of Israel, speaks to them and addresses them this way as more than a mere man, as indeed their Lord. And he speaks in this way, I would, I would have gathered your children together, but ye would not. So there's an opposition and a collision. My will and your wills. And I wish to briefly show how this theme of national judgment will will prevent us from wrong interpretations here. Let's understand that this is one of the favorite texts of Arminians. Arminians who elevate the doctrine of the free will of sinners and would do so at the expense of the sovereign electing purposes of God and salvation. And so what do they do with this kind of text? Well, they would say that what you have here is Christ desiring to save some who indeed reject and resist his will to their own damnation. That is how they would take this. And uh, it's interesting to know that I've, I've even sometimes heard uh, reform ministers cite this text, not in an unorthodox Arminian way, but still somewhat giving that sense that this is what is involved in the text. But look at it very carefully. It does not say, I would have gathered you together. I would have gathered your children together and ye would not. So who is he addressing and who are the children 
of the people he is addressing. That's really the key to the right understanding of this. And we'll return to Dr. Gill because I have had him, found him very helpful this week. Listen to what he says. The word is repeated to show our Lord's affection and concern for that city, as well as to unbraid it with its name. So he's speaking of Jerusalem here. Dignity and privileges and designs not the building of the city, but the inhabitants of it. And these, not all, but the rulers and governors of it, civil and ecclesiastical. In other words, the leaders of the government and the leaders of the church of the Jews. Especially the great Sanhedrin, which were especially in it, to whom best belong the descriptive characters of killing the prophets and stoning them that were sent by God unto them, since it belongs to them to take cognizance of such who called themselves prophets and to examine and judge them, and if false, to condemn them. So what Dr. Gill is saying, it's the context of national judgment that can't be missed here, that it's the leaders of the nation, and in particular headquartered there in Jerusalem, that are being addressed, the leaders of the Jews. And here we have an important reminder against those who would say that Jesus in his own ministry didn't address political leaders, didn't address cultural leaders, limiting himself to religious errors and religious leaders. Well, it's not so. The Sanhedrin, you see, well, with not having the full power to enforce all their laws as they would like, as they were under Roman occupation. Nevertheless, they had the power to enforce many civil penalties. They were civil leaders, and certainly cultural leaders as well as religious. So Jesus is addressing them all. He's addressing the nation specifically as it's represented in its leadership. The leaders of a nation, you see, in a sense, represent the whole people. And in leading the people down a pathway of righteousness or sin, they carry a a certain moral culpability, a responsibility that others do not. And yet others share in their guilt and share in the consequences of their actions to the extent they comply or cooperate, ignore, or otherwise are involved in their guilt. So that's the context. Who are the the people is addressing? Well, the leaders of the people. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not different ways of understanding this, but I would, I would put to you that the most accurate way of expressing this would be that Christ is speaking of his own elect people among the people of the Jews, those whom are ordained to eternal life, that Jesus indeed did gather his chicks unto his wings. He gathered his disciples. He gathered that group of 3,000 that were there on Pentecost 
uh, that were saved on Pentecost Day by the mighty outpouring of his spirit. He saved the church of the Jews and that righteous remnant who did not reject the faith of their father Abraham, but embraced the seed, the true seed of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So rather than elevating the free will of man to frustrate the purposes of Jesus Christ, I put to you that rather it is the context of national judgment that actually allows you to see clearly that yes, there's judgment for this nation, judgment for um, for the nation and its leaders, but yet it will not frustrate Christ's purposes. While they would not, Christ's word is, I would. And yet certainly there is the mourning and the sorrow of Christ as a true righteous man, as indeed the Messiah mediator at the hardness of these Wicked sinners, he says in verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Judgment is coming. All that you have had, all your privileges as a nation, they are to be removed from you for the sake of your hardness of heart and rejection of me. And then verse 39, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. It's beyond the purview of the sermon, but I'll refer to you what we spoke of in the last afternoon service about the salvation of the Jews. Indeed, there is a word here that is very stern, very sobering, that you will not see my face anymore until you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. For that generation, that day would never come, and yet... I think also a clear implication that the day would come where their children and the descendants would mourn on he of whom they have slain and they would embrace Jesus Christ as a nation and people. But my purpose here is simply to say that there's these two principles that we may discern here from these two examples that we have seen. That God does deal with nations according to their sins in this way of temporal judgments for their sin. And in the second place, what's especially relevant is their leadership. Their leadership, the righteous leadership, it will exalt a nation and bring them the favor of God in temporal blessings, while indeed the unrighteous leadership will indeed bring temporal calamity, judgment, temporal and we could say with spiritual consequences. But perhaps you're unpersuaded that this concerns more than just the case of the Jews. We understand, of course, that Israel, as a historical entity, has a specific place in the plan and purposes of God, and there's no nation exactly like Israel. Perhaps we would want to say that the other nations of the world are governed according to different principles, that God, though the same in his character, yet chooses a very different approach. Rather than requiring of peoples and nations conformity to his laws and leadership that honors him, perhaps he is content with more of a pluralistic way of dealing with things, that Uh, Nations may dishonor his laws and reject his Christ and yet receive temporal blessings from him in the long run. Well, let me argue 
for you that it is not so. And for that, I would have you return to our scripture reading in Jeremiah 18. Took the time to read that entire chapter of Jeremiah 18, for it includes for us some very valuable teaching on precisely this point, that the principle that Jesus prophesied and taught concerning the nation of Israel also has wider application as well. And so I won't go over the whole context again, but you understand that uh, the Lord has a word for Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to to give you a special revelation, but first I want you to uh, go into this potter's house. So children, you know what a potter is. A potter is someone who makes pots. He makes pots, and he makes pots out of Clay, Maybe you even know what the potter's wheel is. You take that big clump of wet clay and you take it and you plop that on the spinning, 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 spinning wheel. And, and then you sort of take your hand and you shape and you mold it. And well, what is it Jeremiah see? He goes into the potter's house. He sees the mold, the, the potter molding the clay. And all of a sudden what happens is that it's in verse 4 marred. In the hand of the potter. And so what he does is he makes another vessel instead. He kind of, from what I gather, throws away that lump of clay and makes something else. It just wasn't working. The, the, the texture or the, or the consistency of the clay wasn't, wasn't taking the shape he wanted. It was, it was almost resisting his hand, and so he, he cast it aside. Well, what is all that about? What is this illustration? Well, listen to what follows there in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good, wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now what's striking here is that Jeremiah obviously is in the context of his ministry to the southern kingdom of Judah, obviously many, uh, many years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And later on in this chapter, you read about how through his uh, insightful and godly ministry actually uh, led people to seek to kill him. So the context is bound to, again, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, the people of the Jews. And yet at the same time, listen to what God says here. Yes, that picture of the potter and the clay, it does show something about our relationship, Israel. God is saying, I am sovereign, I am in control, I am almighty. I will do 
with you as I see fit, according to my almighty power, according to my perfect justice. I am the potter and you are the clay, he is saying. And yet, at this point, there is an unusual turn. That if there is a resistance of the clay to the potter, can you imagine such thing? The clay resisting the potter, ridiculous. And yet he's saying that exactly that. If the clay would resist the potter, if you, a puny nation of my people, of mere creatures, would resist the Lord of heaven and earth, then here are the terms in which I will deal with you. And at that point, he shifts and speaks in general. Not only you, Israel, but a nation. A nation, really. You, you read it. He's saying any nation. Every nation, this is the pattern in which I deal with the nations. Suppose, he says, I have purpose to destroy and judge a nation because of the wickedness of their sins. They have resisted my light. They've resisted my truth. They've resisted my word. And so God has spoken unto them of their sin in the law and of his mercy in the gospel. And if such a people would indeed resist and, and harden, then judgment will come. But if they return, if there is general repentance as a nation, then he says in a most interesting way in verse 8, I will repent of the evil I thought to do unto them. He will, God will repent. Of course, we know that in a strict sense, God does not repent. He does not change his counsel and decree or fix from eternity. And he is not a man that he should change his mind. And yet, what he is saying is that he is not unjust. He is not unjust. He is laying out this uh, rule of his, of his um, dealings with the nations, that the, where there is a turning where there is a chastening and a humbling under his hand, a turning unto the God of truth, mercy, and judgment. Indeed, he will not bring that which he had purposed, that which he had promised. He will relent. He will not do that evil. And yet on another case, you have this nation which he is purposing to build, to plant, to bless. And so it seems as though they will receive many blessings from the Lord, temporal blessings for their faithfulness to his laws and to their worship of him. And yet, where they will not obey his voice, where they will not indeed uh, Serve him in truth and in godliness. At that point, he says, I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now, I think this is in the word of God for good reason, that we would understand, we would understand that when such things happen and there are judgments upon a nation, they are not random or accidental, you think of how it was that those people came to the Lord Jesus Christ, about how the Tower of Siloam had fallen on those poor people in the city of Jerusalem. 
And his word was, well, it's just a random accident. No, it wasn't that. He said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So it is also uh, in every case of a national judgment, whatever else God may doing, he is giving some kind of warning, surely. We may not fully understand the full dimensions of what is happening. We may not be able to trace what is the sin that is especially uh, brought about this judgment. What is the special privilege that has been neglected? But surely we can say this, that God is laying out for us here his general principles of how he deals with, with other nations. Listen to what Matthew Poole, the Puritan, writes about this. Quote, God hath the same power over them that a potter hath over the clay, and a greater right to do what he pleaseth with them than any potter hath relating to the clay. The clay is but the potter's purchase, not his creature, but the man is God's creature. That God has an absolute sovereign power to do what he pleaseth with the work of his hands can be denied by no men of sense. Whether God useth this his sovereignty in the eternal punishment of sinners, that is another thing. But he hath a sovereign power. He hath a sovereign power, but he acteth as a just judge, rendering to every man according to his works. There's other parts of Jeremiah's ministry where he also dwells upon this. Let me just read to you three verses from the 10th chapter of Jeremiah. First, verse 7. Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. And then down to verse 9. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Verse 25, pour out thy fury upon the heathen or the nations that know not thee and upon the families that call not on thy name. For they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him and made his habitation desolate. Principles here of God judging other nations, in particular those that had oppressed Israel, um, even under God's judgment upon Israel, using those nations as his instrument, he yet says, I will also judge those nations which have transgressed my laws as well. So what is it that we see here? I want to connect that with what we've already said about God's dealings with Israel. Not only for Israel, but also for Canada and our own nation. God will judge. God will judge our nation and people according to how we have sinned against him and his law. In particular, the despising of light and truth from his word, resisting his voice. And for a nation like Canada that has historically received considerable light from the word of God, we cannot imagine that we will escape. But I want to bring this last uh, text to bear upon this in particular. We may reference 
a few others very quickly, but this is the last major example I wish to show you, and that is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. In the second psalm, you of course know that this is a most famous psalm, setting forth as it does the nations and their opposition to God and to his anointed, the Christ, Jesus himself. And as it does picture the person and work of Christ so clearly, I would focus upon how it may have relevance to this question of national judgment. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 2. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So these are the words of Jesus Christ himself, speaking as the only begotten son of God, according to the covenant that his father has made with him. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen, the nations, for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth, for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. National judgments, the breaking of nations under the mighty rod of our Lord Jesus Christ as King of the nations as God over all the earth. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, will indeed judge those enemies of his church and gospel. He will inherit them as his inheritance, as they are brought under captivity of his grace and kingdom and gospel. But for all who reject him, there is but only to be smashed in pieces like these pots under the mighty blows of a great iron rod. So it's not a foreign principle to the days in which we live now, under the reign of the mediator Jesus Christ, under the new covenant era. There is also this principle that corporate nations that reject Jesus Christ cannot expect his blessings, but temporal national judgments. We read on in that psalm in in verse 10 and following, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Well, a marvelous text, one that surely many of us have memorized. And much gospel comfort here that is contained. There is a blessing for those who truly trust in Jesus Christ. The tenor of the covenant of grace is such that all who put their faith in him, no matter their national background, they shall find a sure refuge from the wrath to come. And yet what is the call here? It is a call to kings, to the judges of the earth, to serve the Lord and rejoice with trembling 
to indeed kiss the Son in that allegiance whereby you bow and kiss his royal ring. Lest what? Lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Not, of course, that we limit that wrath to temporal things or national uh, concerns, but surely we cannot exclude it it from the context here. It's about kings and judges. It's about the leaders of Canada. It's about Premier Doug Ford. It's about Prime Minister Trudeau. It's about President Biden. It's about all those with civil a rule. It's about everyone who sits on a court as a judge administering laws. And what is the uh, call here? What is the summons that you rule just in general, according to general moral principles, according to pluralistic multiculturalism? No. The call is that the nations specifically as represented in their leadership must kiss the Lord Jesus Christ, must explicitly say that Jesus is Lord and render their decisions according to the rule and word of Jesus Christ. And is this a strange teaching and only one psalm? No, you know, of course, the famous Psalm 110, where it says that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Speaking of Jesus Christ, right afterward in Psalm 110, verse 5, it says, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings. In the day of his wrath, he shall judge among the heathen or the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Isaiah 2 verse 4, he shall judge among the nations. He shall rebuke many people. I can multiply the examples. But the prophecies that concern the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have many references to this. Read Psalm 45, read Psalm 68, read the relevant portions of Isaiah that speak of the coming of Jesus Christ. Always, always there is this emphasis. Maybe always is a stretch, but very, very often there's this emphasis. You have the theme of national judgments Through the mediator, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the church, also being the king of the nations, visiting his wrath upon those who reject him. I'm sure I've shown you by this point that this is a valid and indeed an inescapable theme of the scriptures. And it is one that we cannot escape as a people. Even as the church and the people of God, we cannot separate ourselves from our allegiance, responsibility as citizens of Canada. And without being able to exhaust every implication of this for right now, let me simply say that we have so much cause to tremble, so much cause to cry out for mercy. The nations are the Lord's inheritance. The nations are to kiss the Son. And yet where we have transgressed his laws as a people, when we are ripe for judgment, 
I do not know what the future may hold. I do not know if the events of this weekend may escalate. If something else that we do not expect, a financial collapse, a great and terrible war, some terrible tyranny from government that our fathers would never have contemplated, some kind of trial and judgment may yet lie in our future. In the midst of it, Dear one, look unto the mediator. Look unto Jesus Christ. He is the one who in the midst of his judgments, he gathers his chickens under his wings. He is the one who will inherit his people and preserve them through every trial and fire and sword. Even in the midst of much heartache and many crosses, yet the Lord has a purpose for these as well. But let us not be surprised at such things, and let us not be alarmed, for it is written in the word of our God. Amen.